0: I'm Stephen Wright, and this is Beyond Reasonable Doubt from Mail Plus. On Boxing Day 1994, Dr. Joan Francisco, a 27-year-old gynaecologist, was found strangled in her flat in northwest London. After taking inspiration from the Stephen Lawrence case, her sister Margaret and the rest of her family sought justice for Joan's murder. Her family were convinced that her killer was a former boyfriend, Tony Deirdrick, but the Crown Prosecution Service refused to prosecute, blaming a lack of evidence. It took five years, a landmark civil court case, and constant pressure from her family before finally, Deirdre was found guilty. But her family's joy at finally getting justice for Joan was tainted by fears about police blunders in the historic case, which I covered extensively for the male in the mid-1990s. 25 years later, I'm returning to the case and asking whether Joan's family believed they were treated differently because they were black, and the lessons of her case for the Black Lives Matter movement. This is Margaret's story. It seems incredible that it was 25 years ago that I first had contact with you and your family at a time when you were desperate for justice over your sister Joan's murder. We first had contact because I became aware that you were considering suing the suspect in Joan's case over her then unsolved murder and I just wanted to ask you what had led you to that position because you would later create legal history by suing a suspect before he had been uh, found guilty uh, at court. What made you decide to go ahead with that
1: action? so the day after my sister's murder one of the chiefs of the metropolitan police sat in my mother's living room and said we don't let people get away with murder in london i believed in the conviction with which he said that and initially the investigation proceeded at the time i was living in the states and i'd come over frequently to speak with the police about their progress A year passed, and I remember very distinctly one day at the police station and they told me that they had had fiber evidence that they had tested. And although it matched a piece of clothing that the suspect at the time, however, it was such a common fiber that it was inconclusive. And I remember they said, there's nothing much more we can do, but based on the psychological profile of who we think did it, this person will eventually confess. So that wasn't a very encouraging outcome. It was very vague and it left the matter unresolved. And I remember being, actually feeling really shocked, very disturbed, very alarmed, very scared. I thought, I can't believe it. And All of these emotions led me to a place of distrust, made me decide there was something I needed to do, and I could no longer rely on them to bring about justice. And so I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. I base decisions, especially when I don't have a clear idea as to what I'm supposed to do, I base it on a spiritual search for an answer. What ended up happening, somebody told me about Imran Khan and the stephen lawrence case
0: the police certainly from the family's point of view have not taken this investigation as seriously as they would have hoped it's regrettable and we don't want to go over old ground what we want to do is to move forward and hopefully the police will now take very seriously all information they receive however insignificant it may seem to them at the time
1: Imran Khan, he was helping the Lawrence family who was having difficulty getting justice and maybe he could help on some level. And so I called his office and remember the day that I called, they said that Imran was not in that day, that I could come in the following day or I could come in that day and speak with somebody else. I decided I would take my chance and go in that day and speak with somebody else. That's where I'm at, Karen Thatcher. I started talking to her she seemed to have some knowledge about the case and she asked me some questions about what had been done and what the police had done and i remember not being sure or being able to answer those questions and she said well if you like i can check and i can do a couple of things and ask them to take some actions in a couple of areas she did speak with the police got a feel of what had happened and what they had done in the investigation there were gaps possibly and basically decided to come up with a strategy that would, despite the shortcomings in the investigation and the fact that there was nothing, supposedly more that they could do, that she would come up with a strategy that would move us forward in our pursuit of justice. You
0: were, in some ways, inspired by what Stephen Lawrence's family were doing.
1: Completely inspired. And the inspiration grew because, but for learning about what they were doing, I eventually started doing my research as to what they were doing and what they'd encountered and how Imran Khan was helping them and how the underlying aspects of a family that was not getting justice in the system. So, yes, I was very much inspired by them. and interestingly so inspired that i named my son lawrence after the family that was how inspired i was by what they were doing and how had i not known about their case uh, gotten in touch with imran's office we'd have had a completely different outcome
0: this is really extraordinary to hear this because in 1996 i was a newly appointed crime correspondent at the daily mail And Joan's case was one I'd covered a year earlier as a general reporter at the Daily Mail. And I became aware of your family's consideration to the idea of taking legal action against the suspected killer. As a result of contacting Karen Thatcher, when I became aware of that, Imran Khan was in their office at the time, and he said, Well, Joan Francisco's case is really interesting, but you should also look at Stephen Lawrence's case because Imran was acting for the family in their private prosecution. So there was a real sort of overlap between the two cases in lots of ways. Me, the journalist, you, the family, and and they, the lawyers.
1: Yes, but I would like to add, and Imran told us this years later on the day that we won the civil case, when he spoke with Karen Thatcher on the evening of the day that she and I had met. And she told him that I'd been in there in the office and we'd had a conversation. He was rather pessimistic about the chances of there being any success of moving our case forward or getting any kind of positive outcome because he felt that the Stephen Lawrence case, which had way more evidence than our case did at the time, was not moving. And so if that wasn't moving, there was virtually no hope for ours. And Karen, despite being discouraged or advised that it may not be the best case to take on, she was determined to try and help us to do her absolute best to bring about justice in any way she could. And I'm so glad she did. Can I take you back
0: to the time of Joan's murder? It was Boxing Day 1994, and Joan had been packing her bags ahead of a planned trip to visit you in LA. What are your memories of that Christmas?
1: Joan had spent Christmas Day with my mother. We were really excited because Joan was coming the next day. When my sister left my mother's house on Christmas night, the plan was she'd be back the following morning to leave her car there and to catch a taxi to the airport. On Boxing Day morning, my mother called her to make sure she was up. And Joan answered the phone and said, I'll see you later, Mum." and I'll call you when I'm leaving. When Joan didn't arrive by the planned time, my mother got a little bit worried and then the taxi that was scheduled arrived and Joan was not there and my mother wasn't answering the phone. So my mother was rather concerned and because Joan was always on time and this was absolutely unlike her to not show up and not to call. So my mother decided that she was going to ask the police to do a check of my sister's house. And they went to her house and didn't call back for a while because of course they had found Joan dead at this point. And since my mother who had called them asking them to check on Joan was an unverified person as far as they were concerned, they wanted to do some investigating before they actually went to my mother's house to tell her about my sister being found deceased. And so, at that point, my mother was taken to the police station and she called my sister, Celia, to let her know what had happened. Christmas Day and Christmas Eve, I'd spent in Portland with my boyfriend. I had just arrived back in Los Angeles on the morning of Boxing Day, and I called from the airport. I called my sister to let her know I'd landed safely and asked her to take some things out of the refrigerator since I was going to be cooking as soon as I got home. And I remember her voice sounded really strange, subdued. She said, are you on your way? And I said, yes. And she handed the phone to a family friend who was visiting from London, who sounded equally out of character and solemn and subdued. And he says, I said, Margaret, what, you know, how long will it take you to get here? I told him, "You know, I'll be there shortly. Of course, they already had the news and they knew I was gonna be driving and they didn't want to alarm me. So when I arrived home, I remember pulling into the driveway and my sister's husband was standing waiting for me and his face was ashen. I said, What's wrong? And he says, Let me help you get your things into the house. And I thought, he and my sister must have had an argument. When I got in to the house, um, that's when Celia said, Joan is dead. The bottom fell out of my world. I couldn't even comprehend what she was saying. And I remember thinking, was there a plane crash? I mean, what happened? My brain went into a state of chaos. She explained that Joan had been found dead, that my mother was at the police station. And I remember sitting with my sister, we were just holding hands. And we were just, just completely devastated. And I called my best friend and told her what had happened. And she reached out to one of our spiritual leaders. What ensued with the short conversation that I had with this man shortly thereafter kind of changed the trajectory of everything. He said to me, very compassionately and also very strictly, he said, "You know, you must create value from your sister's death so that her life will not have been in vain." That was where something shifted. From it was I was thinking. Um, very darkly into a very deep, dark abyss, And his words made me do an about turn by making the determination that somehow I would create value from this.
0: How soon, Margaret, was it before you and Celia were aware that that Joan had been murdered?
1: It would probably have been when we arrived in London the next day, because we were met by the police at the airport and the police officer i remember him saying really sorry that we're going to have to take you to pick up your mother and to identify your sister's body this is being treated as a homicide that's my first memory of hearing that i just don't remember anything said earlier about the fact that she was strangled
0: can you remember what went through your mind at that moment there had been some issues about Jones' security, had there been in the past? I just wonder whether you immediately thought, I know who probably did this.
1: I didn't, but Celia, way sooner than I could even process all of this, and, and this, this wasn't immediate for her, but she did suspect Tony Diedrich, and she articulated at one point pretty early in the process, in the, in the investigation, that she thought he had something to do with it. I didn't make that connection, although one month prior to Joan's death, I remember my mother calling me. She said, you know, Tony Dudrecht contacted me and wanted Joan's contact information. I told him that if he wanted to talk to her, he could write a letter, leave it for me, and I would get it to her. Six years had passed since we'd last heard from him. He really could not leave her alone. That was why he had pursued her, which we later found out and had been stalking her for six years.
0: At the police station, when you were given more details about Joan's death, how were you treated? Did you feel you'd been treated well? And I imagine it's just uh, shocking to have to go and identify your sister's body.
1: Yes, we were treated. I mean, I don't remember that day other than standing with my sister and my mother, looking at my sister's lifeless body, just trying to take it all in. We were very fortunate that there was a very kind police officer who'd spent the night with my mother, who had held her, had cried with her, had been really, really kind. And I was glad to hear that. So from a, an emotional support standpoint, this particular police officer did a stellar job. and You know, the police were involved from day one. They came to the house every day. They started the investigation right away. They didn't say a whole lot about what they were doing, but it seemed as if they were going full steam ahead with trying to conduct an investigation to find the perpetrator.
0: Joan was 27 and she was living in St. John's Wood. I remember writing at the time, in fact, I'm looking at an article I wrote in early 1996, 27-year-old gynaecologist, whose friends included former world heavyweight boxing champion Lennox Lewis, ex-England footballer John Fashionu. She clearly was a very bright woman, very glamorous. Could you tell us more about Joan's life? Because she was in medicine and she was destined for high things, wasn't she, when her life was cruelly ended?
1: She was a bright, compassionate person who loved what she did, loved life, always operated at 20 out of 10. Everything she did, she did it in a big way. She loved practicing medicine. She loved dancing, telling jokes. She loved life. She was also a very friendly person. So she would talk to anybody and somehow she would always know the best nightclubs to go to and because she was such a outgoing bright and beautiful person she naturally attracted just a lot of attention and a lot of people and so that's how she got to know all of these celebrities
0: in the 1980s joan the high flyer she had a relationship with the man who would ultimately murder her tony dierdrick who was probably the complete opposite in terms of his personality and, and his ambitions do you remember their time as a couple and what it was like was it a turbulent relationship
1: i remember meeting him and something struck me we went to brunch and we were having a conversation about something and i disagreed with his opinion and he exploded in a manner that was so intensely negative and volatile i remember i started shaking i later found out that celia had had a similar encounter with him where she saw him explode it concerned her so much so that Celia wrote a letter to Joan saying, Tony Diedrich is a walking time bomb. Get away from him. And Joan did. She ended the relationship. We thought that was the last of it. I'm so glad that she listened to Celia. What we didn't know was that even though Joan ended the relationship, he wasn't able to accept that he started going to my mother's house at night and would be standing outside stalking my sister. In fact, what happened one evening, probably a year or so after they would split up, my sister was studying with a friend. She went upstairs to wash her hands, and as she was washing her hands, she noticed something on the roof below that looked like a bunch of old clothes and she thought that's strange why would there be clothes on the roof and then it moved and she thought she was seeing things anyway she went downstairs and all of a sudden Tony Diedrich came smashing through the French doors. Joan and her friend in terror ran upstairs and locked the door and called the police. By the time the police came he'd run off but of course they knew who he was, he was arrested and. I believe the police actually chose not to charge him, but he was apologetic. He said, I'll pay for the damage, I'm really sorry. Ironically, the police officer who made the decision not to pursue charges was actually a witness at Jones' civil case. I remember he apologized with tears in his eyes to my mother for not doing more at the time.
0: I, thought I remember rightly, Diedrich had threatened to kill Joan's new boyfriend and his behaviour became worse, didn't he? He didn't mend his ways. He was bugging her conversations, spying on her, being a real menace. And and this, obviously, is a time when stalking probably wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been, certainly not as as seriously as it is today. It was a different era, but that's not an excuse for how the police, in my opinion, uh, behaved in relation to taking her situation more seriously.
1: I think the big error was with that incident where he smashed into the house. As far as his continued stalking, no one was aware of that. And that came out actually during the civil trial.
0: With the Stephen Lawrence case, the Lawrence family took out a private prosecution against three of his suspected murderers.
1: By 1996, the fight had extended to the family bringing its own private prosecution, testing the limits of what's possible. Within days, the trial collapsed. Well, I believe in fairness and um... I don't think what
0: happened today is is fair at all. It was a criminal prosecution, meaning the level of evidence needed to prove guilt was higher. The jury had to be convinced, beyond reasonable doubt, that the three men were guilty. But the Lawrences' prosecution eventually collapsed in 1996 due to insufficient evidence. But you decided to sue Deirdre in a civil case which only required the court to find him guilty on a balance of probability, which I'm assuming was a very conscious decision. You sued Deirdre for assault and battery. Can you explain the reasoning behind it, the advice you received from Karen, your lawyer, about what you could achieve by doing that?
1: So Karen said that the police didn't feel there was enough evidence, well there was definitely no forensic evidence, that time. And so with lack of forensic evidence and only circumstantial evidence, the police didn't feel they had anything sufficient to bring criminal charges. However, there was so much circumstantial evidence that Karen said, we've got to do something. And so she thought with with the body of circumstantial evidence, we had a strong case. And hopefully, if Diedrich took the stand, more information could come out that could be used in criminal charges being brought. And so it was something that could certainly move us forward. And so I was really happy that Karen had suggested something. The fact its novelty didn't strike me initially, but it soon became very apparent that what we were doing had never been done before. And I can remember the first day at court as we were getting out the the cab, I mean, there was a whole crowd of reporters outside
0: just coming back to me now as we discuss events from 25 years ago before you actually formally sued him i actually went and knocked on his door at his home and he invited me in he seemed like a really odd man to put it mildly odd doesn't mean he's guilty of murder but he was a very odd man but he didn't seem worried about the prospect of being sued He didn't seem worried at all, whether that's naivety or ignorance, I don't know. But I I spent probably about 15 minutes with him. He protested his innocence, but you went ahead with your court case. And by then, I mean, I'd done a number of articles in the Daily Mail. There was a lot of publicity. You were making legal history.
1: In preparing for the civil case, we asked the police to provide us with the evidence that they had gathered thus far. And there were lots of binders full of reports and investigative reports, interviews with various people. And I remember Karen stating that in one of the binders, there was a report from one of the police officers fairly high up that there was a derogatory statement that Joan had what was coming to her. And I remember thinking, I can't believe that you just told me that. And I remember she sent me a copy of it and sure, there it was in black and white. It was a almost like a, here's a black woman who was killed possibly by a black person and she had it come into her. Um, it was like a slap in the face.
0: I can't recall ever hearing that, but I'm, I'm looking at the timeline here, Margaret, because... Your civil case against Deirdre at the High Court, I remember it very clearly, was was 1998. That was around the time the McPherson inquiry into Stephen Lawrence's murder was taking place in early 1999. Obviously, a case close to my heart as well, that uh, Sir William McPherson and his panel ruled that the Metropolitan Police was institutionally racist. There is institutional racism in the police still. There is in much of the public service, including in this institution the Home Office, but what the Macpherson Report did was to open people's eyes to the facts of institutional racism, something which, frankly, many were trying to deny. It was damning of the Met and how they dealt with the black uh, Asian communities as victims in particular. I just wonder, when you think about that term, institutionally racist, do you think that what Karen uncovered in those police documents is, is evidence of that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, some of them actually put it in black and white. But what's interesting, see, I didn't know about that finding of institutionalized racism. Some things make sense now because it was after the civil trial, the police said, well, ultimately the Crown Prosecution Service as well, as the police said that although we'd won the civil case, there still wasn't enough evidence since there's a higher threshold of proof required in a criminal case versus a civil case and there still wasn't enough evidence. Murdered, and a civil action brought by her family ended with a High Court judge naming her killer. But the CPS said last month they won't bring him to trial.
0: What was your family's reaction, Margaret, to winning that case? Was it a bittersweet moment? Because although a civil court had found against Deirdre, he hadn't been convicted
1: of Joan's murder. We were very, very hopeful and very excited, actually, because we thought that with the win in civil court, that the Crown Prosecution Service would use that win as a reason to move forward with criminal charges. So, in the days following the civil trial, we were waiting, I guess, with bated breath, but very optimistic and hopeful. So, what was crushing was, and I'll, I'll never forget it, it was a Friday evening, and it was the day that Frank Sinatra died. And I remember thinking that the Crown Prosecution Service, or the police, or the two of them together, used this celebrity moment as a way to mask or camouflage, draw attention away from their decision to not move forward with prosecuting. Well, the reason they gave was that they said that, you know, not enough evidence. It, despite the win, there still was not enough evidence, yeah.
0: The phrase used in the media quite cynically often is that it's a good day to bury bad news, something which government departments have been accused of doing in the past. It continues to happen on occasions, but I'm just looking here that it came out in the civil case that not long before Deirdre murdered Joan, he actually wrote a a letter to her begging for forgiveness. Hi, Joan, I had an urge to write to you. I hope you can forgive me for my outrageous behaviour following our breakup. At the time, I just lost control. Perhaps you can understand. Now, when you consider that, Margaret, and you know all the other evidence in the case, circumstantial as it was then, it must have been enormously frustrating for your family. As you just said, it didn't cross the threshold for a criminal murder charge against him.
1: Yeah, it was a very dark day that day when we got that news. But at the same time, I guess the thought was, well, okay, we've got to do something else. And Karen, such an amazing woman with such drive and a strong determination to make sure that justice was done. Even though we didn't know what we were going to do next, we knew we were going to do something. There was still this glimmer of hope because we were going to figure out something else that we could do. And then we did. Well, let's just say the events, although they were negative in that it brought to light some terrible things about the way Stephen Lawrence's death was handled, it actually created a situation where the police were worried enough about their perception. Karen arranged an appointment for us to meet with, I can't even remember who, who we met with, but she arranged an appointment, and when we walked into that room, I saw trepidation, nervousness, almost like a fear, in the faces of the police officers in that room. Something had shifted. So I remember them saying, "Oh." I know that you initiated this meeting, but we were actually going to reach out to you because we've decided to do a second-eyes process or view of the case, where the case would be brought to a round table of officers from around the country who would look at each other's unsolved cases and lay fresh eyes on the case to see if there was something that the original investigative office had missed. They had not approached us about this, but claimed that that's what they were considering and would have reached out to us with this proposal of what they were going to do. That created a window of opportunity that ultimately moved things forward with the reinvestigation and the ultimate discovery, supposedly, of evidence that was already had been in their possession for four years, DNA evidence extracted, which led to. Diedrich being tested and there being a match.
0: It's quite an embarrassing moment. I remember learning that there had been a forensic breakthrough in the case as a result of a a new review. I think it was a T-shirt, wasn't it? Or a shirt she'd been wearing. Hadn't been properly tested during the initial investigation. Now, to be fair to the police, forensic DNA evidence was in its infancy in the mid-90s. But nevertheless, I remember Karen... Who I had a good professional relationship uh, with, uh, in particular, was really angry that there appeared to have been negligence in the original forensic examinations of Joan's clothes, where blood specks, wasn't it, of Deirdre were found on uh, with were on her t-shirt, and they had they hadn't been picked up.
1: And you know, but for our fortune of having somebody like Karen and having the flexibility to be able to actually move back and forth between the U.S. and the U.K. and, and having this drive to have closure for my mother. But for all of that, the case would never have been solved, even though there was evidence in the possession of the police that could solve the case. It would never have happened.
0: Because it was January 1999, I'm reading a story I wrote here in the Daily Mail, an exclusive story about the forensic breakthrough in the case, which had belatedly, I think that's fair to say, uh, identified the direct forensic evidence linking Tony Diedrich to to Jones' murder. And he was charged... Within 24 hours of my article. And Deirdre stood trial for Joan's murder in the autumn of 1999. The evidence included the fact that the vital clue in her case, three spots of blood, went undetected for almost four years because the scientists assumed it came from Joan, not her killer. It was said that DNA techniques were not advanced enough to test it. I think Karen disputed that. But the old Bailey heard that uh, Deirdre was obsessive, had. Uh, not handled rejection uh, after Joan ended their relationship. So he went through a lot of the evidence, which was at the civil court case. And the jury was only out for a few hours, if I remember rightly. It didn't take long to convict uh, him of, of Joan's murder. Just remember what your recollections are of that moment, because it had been a marathon quest for justice, hadn't it, and it taken nearly five years to get justice for Joan.
1: The joy, the relief, the bittersweet joy and relief of the conviction, because of course, yes, we'd received justice, but that didn't bring Joan back. I mean, ultimately, justice prevailed. We were relieved. There was now closure, and we had done it ourselves. And I remember the police officers who were in the court at the time, I remember afterwards, they were saying, oh, we did it, that the outcome was based on their efforts as opposed to ours and our legal teams, especially Karen Thatcher. Karen Thatcher was an indomitable force that I will be eternally grateful for. Her determination, her insight, her absolute commitment to fighting for justice. She believed that her life mattered and wanted to do everything in her power to make sure that her loss of life was punished. So I thank her. I'll be eternally grateful. But for her, this would never have happened.
0: Well said, because I had lots of conversations with Karen, and she was so determined to help you get justice. I'm just reading a statement which she made following the murder conviction of Deirdre. She said, it is shocking to think that, but for the family's pursuit of this case, the Metropolitan Police would never have gone (laughs) back to Joan's T-shirt and found three spots of Deirdre's blood which linked him to the murder conclusively. That's what Karen said, I, you know, the Met, uh, I think, would have probably have said, we would have gone back and reviewed the case in due course as a matter of routine. But I guess the Karen's point and your family's point is that we had to drive this, should it have taken five years to get justice for Joan.
1: From a big picture standpoint, the fact that it took so long, but that we didn't give up, I think, gives the outcome and the lesson even more significance. No matter what is thrown before you by the police, no matter what roadblock or whatever stoppages there are or statements that they can't do more, if you don't accept that and keep going, I mean, mean, that's the most important thing, however long it takes, keep going until you get a result. I really hope too, because that There are more attorneys out there or more lawyers out there that use Karen as an example to have relentless approach to ensuring justice for their clients, to be creative and novel if if needs be in their approach and to, to think outside of the box. If they follow her formula, which was doing everything within her power and not letting anything to stop her. As every roadblock that came up, she found a way around it and ultimately got an amazing result. You look back now
0: at at your family's quest for justice and how you say you were treated by the Metropolitan Police around the time that the McPherson Inquiry was branding the Met institutionally racist. If you look back at that now through the prism of the Black
1: Lives Matter campaign, what are your thoughts? So, of course, the movement was not in place then. It is now. Maybe we were one of the forerunners in showing that a black life did matter and that we were not going to leave it in the hands of somebody that didn't think that life mattered to bring about a positive result. I think it shows us then and now in order to make sure that black lives do matter and to bring about change, it takes continued effort. It takes continued legislation to change the training, the mindset. And mindset is something that you can't just change by putting laws in place. It's, it's a much bigger thing than that, but, but change does need to happen. And it's going to take a while. So in the meanwhile, people of color find themselves in situations where justice is not prevailing, that they have to take it upon themselves in a dignified, decisive, and well thought out way to make sure that justice is done in each situation that comes up.
0: Can I just ask you, I think you're keen to make this point that your your life has moved on and, and your religious beliefs have been a big part in that, haven't they?
1: Yes, so I'm a Buddhist, and I'm part of a Buddhist organization called the Silka and the three things that we, we focus on, the importance of the dignity of life, living your life in a way where you are acting with wisdom, courage, and compassion, and also with every situation. And with every negative situation, there is an opportunity to create value from it. There's a concept called turning poison into medicine.
0: I want to thank you for agreeing to revisit some painful memories. It seems very relevant today in the era we're in to revisit Joan's case and your family's historic quest for justice seems very relevant. So thank you, Margaret.
1: Stephen, thank you so much for this opportunity. And I so very much hope Everybody who listens to this gets something out of it that will help them advance what's happening right now and what needs to happen more quickly, which is honouring and respecting all lives.
0: You've been listening to Beyond Reasonable Doubt, a MailPlus podcast with me, Stephen Wright. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider visiting mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more.